You're in the Thunderdome, man. Here we go. Let's do it. <laughs> Hope you make it out alive. It's going to be a cakewalk <laughs> for you, I think. <laughs> awesome. Well, Alfred, um, why don't we start with, we're, we're going to get into you know who you are and what you're doing, but why don't we start with one of our fun sort of intro questions here. This is a distributed energy podcast, right? The Dirtif podcast. When did you first? What get... is Dirtif? What's the TF stand for? Task Force. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah, you want to so... give the whole spiel? We haven't done yeah, much on the. Pod. We should. We should actually. We probably market ourselves poorly with this. Yeah. I know people are like, "Wait, you're on the podcast." <laughs> to be all. What's the time. a task force? No, I don't have Twitter. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think what we're doing right high level is we we get all the people working on distributed energy together. Um, we kind of think stuff at the grid edge is, I'd say, the the least developed, so sort of the most ripe to to uh, you know sort of build something out of. Right? There's a lot of opportunity there, um, but it's kind of I'd say subversive a little bit. It changes things. It's it's tough, right? And so it's really a community. Um, we do the podcast to talk to cool people like you and sort of reach others. But, uh, you know, we have meetups, we have a big, uh, sort of big event every year. And then there's a ton of people working on all kinds of stuff together. There's a policy team. There's, uh, there's these awesome James and Colleen. Have you guys seen these VPP like working groups? I've seen that they're like happening, but I'm yeah. just kind of letting it run. It's very, very much like a open autonomous organization so there's just things things happening right so we are the task force that yeah i was even going to go to like the the og energy task force the short of it is like why we're called the task force a bunch of hippies in the 70s literally bought a building from new york on the lower east side i thought that might be the imagery of this yeah you know the the story yeah yeah i love the the story yeah superpower yeah, yeah, that's it's right. In that. yes. Yeah, we yeah. Stole it from Russell Gold. We've talked yeah, to Travis, yeah, yeah. like one of the task force guys. Um, he did our I, first I holiday know. party. Right, that was that's right. Yeah. That's so funny. But I think you know that the ethos behind it is the similar kind of like just go do the equivalent of like building the wind turbine. <laughs> you know, like don't ask for permission. Just like go do stuff. Um, I love so it. I we stole the name. I was looking at the imagery on the site and it looked like 70s New York. And I was wondering yeah. if that was the connection. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. He actually sent us those photos. It was really cool. Like we That's did a big sick. print in our office. We're like, hey, do you have any photos from like, you know, back then? Yeah. It's, he's he's the, he's actually a super interesting guy still. He's like a successful architect, Travis. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, you're in the task force now because you're helping uh, DER developers get tax credits, right? So that's that's what we're doing. Dirt I love it. Here. All right. So, when did you first get derpilled? So, are I you derpilled? I'm derpilled, baby. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just have, we've we've started to have to check lately, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like. Yeah. Uh, I uh, started working on this stuff initially when I was at Treasury the first time. I was at Treasury from 09 through 2011, working on first the financial crisis response and then the Recovery Act. And so I was working on the implementation of some of the Recovery Act policies around clean energy, which is the first time 
that I got exposed to some of these incentives for wind and solar at a smaller scale and just have been fascinated with it ever since. I love that. My first energy job was evaluating those funds and their uh, effectiveness. How did we do? Pretty good. Yeah. You know, it was the overall national. So, you know, some states did better than others with how they disperse funds, but we won't. Oh, that's it. a good topic. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. That's a whole nother pod. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. So, you know, at the time it was the biggest investment of the federal government of Congress in climate related policy it was just huge. The yeah. Obama administration spent the remainder of the administration talking about how big it was. And it was like $70 billion, something like that, which of course like is objectively large, but is now paled in comparison by the IRA. Yep. hundred percent. Wow. So and that you, you that's first. It, it, well, that's interesting though. Is like, I haven't heard a lot of like through the treasury Durpill story. Like, can you go a little more <laughs> in the like, how did you wind? <laughs> yeah. Just like being in government being like, Oh, DERs, like, this is cool. Like, is it that linear? Like, how did you actually, can you like go a little not, bit more into the connective tissue there? I'm, I'm not linear. So I was, I was working on the recovery act stuff with maybe, I don't know, 25% of my time. Most of what I was doing was the financial crisis response. And then also the implementation of the regulatory reforms that followed. I then went into the white house, I guess the place where I, really got interested in this stuff was before I went to business school after treasury in the white house, I went to Sierra Leone and was working for the minister of energy and water resources there and just saw how limited the central grid was to be able to respond to the needs of the people. I mean, it was to the point where like they no longer even really considered it as an alternative, it was obvious that they were going to need different sorts of distributed solutions in place of the centralization. And I was working on that for a few months. And that's probably the place where it became totally obvious to me that this was the future and that it had really wide implications beyond what I had been doing at the treasury, but to the rest of the world and the energy system. Nice. So that's why you, that you said you'd listen to the Emily pod. So you still yeah. have a, yeah, nice. They're totally. so epic. Yeah. What she's doing is so phenomenally innovative. Yeah. 100%. Cool. Well, that's, I mean, that's like, that's like the most DER thing, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, like truly unelectrified <laughs> off grid. That's awesome. Um, okay, cool. Do you have a favorite DER? Uh, I, I mean, I don't mean this because you guys do it, but I have found what you guys are doing with SMS to be really cool. Mm, good answer. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> the first time your tires have gotten pumped, Duncan. This is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Calling, this is great. Now, I met early in this most recent crux journey, and I can tell you kind of how this all came to be, but I met Ryan Goodman early in the journey, and he mm. told me what you guys were up to. And again, it just struck me as the sort of things that needs to exist with a lot of additional tailwind now coming from the subsidy of the IRA. So I think it's exciting. Well, cool. Let me, let me just a random question here. If I were to tell you that my favorite DER is an induction stove, would you think that's a DER? 
Uh, you like, what are you talking about? That's not a DER. That's just a use of energy. You're really bringing this back more up? like a use of energy. I mean, maybe yeah. like, but I guess how do you um, how do you go to the smallest unit of DER? I don't know. Mm. What do you think? Well, I was just curious because you know that was Kieran's answer, right? He he said the induction stove is his favorite DER, and. We're just still we hashing did, it out. We can't decide. I mean, we did, well, yeah. we did forgive him and decide it was, but I still, like, am on the, if if it's only battery-enabled induction, like, is it not then just the battery? Like, would induction mm, without a battery like count? Yeah. No, as an EV without a battery, a DER, come on. I mean, it's part of the but product, an EV, right? But an EV is a battery, whereas, like, induction isn't. Like an induction stove. I don't know. It enables the performance of the, of the stove. I'm Smart. on Team Kieran now. I I already flipped on on there. Converted. And, yeah, I'm I'm all in. It's interesting that you know the the two uh, the two folks who've you know maybe been invested in by Kieran just financially benefiting from Kieran. suddenly aligning. <laughs> oh, so you're saying say a bias. Interesting. Tonight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um one more for you, Alfred. Um what is your hottest energy take? My hottest energy take. I think geothermal is really cool. I sort of like can't get enough of the systems there and the potential there. Yeah, so you went for you like went for you went for temperature hot. That's a, I that's a like good hack. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, physically that's hot. kind of lukewarm. Um, but... Wait, so with geothermal, do you mean like geothermal power generation or like geothermal heat pumps? Which I, yeah, I sort of view like, as like two separate. Like, like dandelion I, like, I or fervo? I was thinking more yeah. fervo. Nice. But I do think dandelion is also cool. I like it. I think you're right. I think geothermal for power could end up being like a very uh, sort of unexpected participant in all of this. Um, yeah, it's just, it's also like, just it, so like scientifically and physically interesting that we like yeah. drip into the core yeah. of the earth and extract energy. I love it. I don't know if anyone started watching the new Apple TV show called Silo. Um, this, this now plug for it. This is now uh, sponsored by, <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> anyway. There's a there's an episode without getting to like too many spoilers. There's an episode about how they generate energy. It's like this like dystopian future, and it's not clearly discussed, but it's very obvious to me that it's geothermal, mm. um, like steam coming up from the core because they've like lost all the like history of how the silo was made. There's mm. like steam. There's like random steam that just comes in, and I was isn't like that, geothermal. Isn't that just so what Manhattan is like? Just steam <laughs> coming out of the ground. It's actually you ever true. watched any 80s movie <laughs> that is true but we do generate the steam <laughs> somehow through some ancient methods through burning yeah. shit yeah <laughs> Wait, so is the is the take there that like we're just sleeping on it are you just like long geothermal and that's like yeah i mean so here's what got me thinking about it i was actually i was looking at the david energy website today and you make this point on there that energy is abundant it's everywhere right it's just a question of how we harness it and as i was thinking about that point and thinking about the fact that it is like literally under every footstep that we make um you know i i, I was thinking about how powerful that notion is if we can figure out how to scale it now it's like it's so technically and physically complex that it 
it seems like it should be at the outer edge of possible. But I think what some of these companies are doing here is is really, really interesting. I love it. Well, you did your research on us too. This is great. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to know what you found, but Thunderdome before it came. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, why don't we get into Crux then? Um, yeah. Maybe I'll just lead with a little context for those who aren't necessarily in the know on the the former state of these things, and then we want to hear how Crux kind of makes this better or possible. Um, right, but for a long time, tax credits have been the way the government has accelerated clean energy deployment. Right, it's it's free money, right? Um, but it turns out it's not super free, right? Because it's kind of complicated to get it. Um, any kind of tax credit needs a tax liability for it to be valuable, right? So, say you build a wind farm, it's called uh, you know Wind Farm One LLC. It has no income yet. What are you going to use that tax credit for, right? Uh, nothing, right? And so this whole notion of like tax equity came to be, you know, partnership flips, all this super complicated like commercial financial structuring to make it such that someone with a tax bill is now in the project and can utilize these these credits, right? Um, yep. With the IRA, we have this new thing called transferability, which is you can sign away your tax credit to someone else. And that's really interesting. And I think it's something some, everyone's sort of been waiting for and wanting for a long time. And now that it's here, we're all realizing we don't know really what it's going to look like. Um, and so there's companies like Crux popping up to figure this out. Um, so maybe which, what we could start with is just you know, what does Crux do in all of this uh, sort of new tax credit paradigm? What are you guys up to? Yeah, so your summary there is is perfect. We we make the decision in the U.S. to subsidize energy, clean energy via the tax code. That isn't like an obvious decision. It's not preordained that we would do that, but that's the way that we do it. The implication of that is that many of the companies that are generating these credits don't have sufficient tax liabilities to be able to consume them. And to your point, what that required previously was inviting so-called tax investors into the ownership structure of the assets in order to monetize them, the credits. That led to a bunch of inefficiency. It, it is still a useful tool for a series of reasons having to do with the way that the project finance comes together and some other attributes that are associated with tax equity, but it's more inefficient than it needs to be for most of the projects that are incentivized, particularly the smaller and more distributed you go uh, in terms of those projects. And so the IRA saw this huge problem coming and that tax equity was not going to be able to scale with the volume of credits that were created by the law and created transferability to be the mechanism by which those projects would have their tax credits monetized, their tax credits could be sold. And so that creates a really obvious need for a marketplace where the sellers and the buyers of those credits can interact with each other. The, the interesting thing about this is even though tax credits are simpler than tax equity, they're still not simple. They have lots of underlying documents, in some cases, hundreds of underlying documents, many stakeholders around the table. 
uh, and a lot of complexity to originate and sell them some compliance that is needed by the buyer of those credits on the back end of it. And so what, what that leads to is the need for workflow data and stakeholder management software to facilitate the transaction and a marketplace to form around that software. And that's what Crux is. We call ourselves the ecosystem for tax credit sellers, buyers, and intermediaries to transfer the new track tax credits under the IRA. Can we zoom in quickly on, so pre-IRA, pre-transferability, pre-Crux, why is it worse for small projects? Or I often heard this talked about for like sort of newer tech too, like actually geothermal, for example, new approaches to geothermal, people saying, ah, the sort of tax credit paradigm is kind of holding us back because it's it's tough for us to get that same uh, sort of value embedded in our in our projects. So tax equity is is a complicated structure. It is essentially a, a loan that goes to the project that is repaid in the form of cash, depreciation, and tax credits. It will flip in terms of its ownership structure when a predetermined yield is achieved for the credit. And, and all of that structuring to create the dynamics where the investor, the tax investor is treated as an owner of the asset and is able to be monetized the credits is, is very complicated to put in place. There are lots of different stakeholders that are at the table. There's the seller of the credit, there's the tax investor, there's the debt, the lender to the project, the equity in the project, counsel for all of the different parties in that transaction. And, and that tends to require a lot of legal structure that can be onerous both on the parties that are putting those deals together uh, and on the buyers that are are receiving it. And so the implication there is that it's it's something that only makes sense if you're amortizing those costs or stretching those costs over enough dollars that it makes it worthwhile. And so you end up seeing tax equity being deployed quite usefully in utility scale projects around wind and solar. And when you're at a scale, that makes sense. Right? It, it is achieving something useful in the project structure that warrants all of the legal structure mm -hmm. around it. But the smaller you get and the more novel you get, the further you get from wind and solar, you know, utility scale stuff, the harder it is to bring that tax equity to the table. And the more you're stretching large legal costs over fewer dollars, which make it not as worthwhile to go through the headache of doing. So what is what has tended to happen there is that there's a sort of convergence of tax equity around the largest projects that leads to newer technologies and smaller projects not being able to access that financing at all, or certainly not on the same rates that the largest projects are able to get. And and it's I was going to say, so newer tech is, is part, I guess, like, the fee structure makes sense to me. And then the newer tech side is more of like confidence in cash flows for that return being hit that you're paying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also like remember that the IRA massively expanded the subsidies that were provided for other yeah, categories totally. that, you know, had never been used for tax equity before. So yep. there's more credits provided for more things. And now there's a new process by which you can sell those credits 
So it's anticipated that the new stuff that has never gone through the tax equity kind of structure is more likely to go through transferability than it would tax equity structure. Okay, so you said Crux is, it's both the marketplace and the sort of tools and workflow stuff to make this happen. Yeah. yeah. What, I mean, what's so, that side? Like marketplace, okay, that clearly that's necessary. What It might be less intuitive to people, the rest of it. Why is that necessary? So again, these are complicated transactions. They're simpler than tax equity, but they're still complicated. There are lots of underlying pieces to them you know, hundreds of documents, still many stakeholders at the table, the requirement that the seller has to be able to intake bids against their project, be able to share information against with the right level of information protections around that information. So be able to manage NDAs, share information with people that have uh, presented offers on credits, then upload documents in a structured way that the buyers are able to process, manage the assignment of insurance when it's necessary around the transaction. And then on the on the buyer side, the buyer is subject to a five-year compliance obligation on the ownership of the credit. And in that sense, we, we think that the software will look something like Carta on the buy side, where buyers will have portfolios of credits that they need to be able to produce information on when they're asked for it from investors or the IRS and having that in a single place where they can easily access that is something that the buyer also needs. Last piece of it that we Crux are quite focused on is intermediaries are going to play an important role in this market. These tax credits are now a multi-hundred billion dollar, if not trillion dollar new asset class created by the government. And intermediaries, mainly financial institutions, are going to facilitate the transaction of those credits and make markets in those credits. And that's useful because it'll bring more buyers to the table and we really need to do that. But those syndicators, those intermediaries also need software to be able to facilitate those transactions. And Crux will build that software for them as well. Those intermediaries being? Mostly banks. So like the largest participants in the tax equity market are going to continue to do tax equity and deploy their own balance sheets into these tax credits, either directly via transferability or in the form of tax equity. And many of them will syndicate alongside that activity. They'll either syndicate credits off the same projects that they are doing tax equity for, or just do syndication of other projects. And what that means is building demand among their clients for these tax credits. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, have, okay. <clears throat> I actually have like two questions that I guess stem from that. One would be like, it seems like, you know, the, the need on the sort of seller side is pretty clear. Like, you know, maybe democratizing access to tax credits and like getting more projects funded is like a very clear kind of awesome result of this. Um, but do you say, see anything like, on the buyer side, because you see like carbon marketplace startups, uh, um, you know, out there or like, you know, even companies like Arcadia, we both know Kieran, obviously, um, sort of, um, getting people who want to participate in clean energy projects, like access to, uh, recs and community solar and things like that. So do you see a benefit like on the buyer side, are you focused on a particular set 
of buyers who have an appetite for this, who haven't had access in the past. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. It, well, and the, I mean, it's like maybe not quite related, but maybe in a, in, in some ways is just like, you know, it's clear Carta has this whole like sort of, there's all these layers that are now building on top of this like initial wedge in that they, that they've had. And I'm, I'm just curious if whether it's on the seller or the buyer side, like you envision something there that's like another layer layer of like additive to say the seller side. So yeah. I don't know, two, Good. two meaty questions there, but yeah, I'm just two curious. Great questions. Uh, okay. So, so first on buyer side and what buyers need, then on tools that will better enable the market and support what buyers need. So first to ground on the market is currently constituted. So the, the market is currently constituted, very legally intensive, basically the domain of the largest financial institutions in entirety. There are something like 40 or 50 firms that participate in the tax equity market on an annual basis. And that has been constrained which leads to tax equity being able to take the terms that they want in these deals, but that has more or less worked. Now the IRA created five to 10 X the number of tax credits. So we're, we're about to get to a world where the number of tax credits that are generated on an annual basis goes from something like 20 billion to something like a hundred billion. That's a huge number that are going to need to get purchased on an annual basis in order to clear the market. And if we fail to do that, if we fail to bring those new buyers to the market at the scale that we need to, the capital isn't gonna be there. And if the capital isn't there, then the projects can't get built as efficiently as they need to because the haircut that they will get on the sale of the tax credits will be too high. And, and so the value of the credit to the seller of the, of the credit to the project will be a lot less. So on the buy side, we need to make this as easy as possible for many new corporations, hundreds or thousands of new corporations to come into the market, express what their, their goals are, their needs are from a, from a sustainability investment perspective and from a tax management perspective, be able to match that need to a specific amount of credits. Buyers have all sorts of other things that they are solving for the credit price, the location of the credit, the technology, things like that. So the buyers need to be able to search for credits that match their goals, their timeline and their goals, purchase those credits, and then be able to manage them in a system where if they're later asked to produce information on it, they can find it and share it with people that ask. So that, that's sort of what the, the need looks like around buyers. Now, from a Carta perspective, as you said, Carta built this like very essential cap table management software and then has layered on a bunch of other tools on top of that. I think we see a similar opportunity here where once a buyer is using Crux to purchase tax credits and manage them, they can come back to Crux and buy them easily within the system. They can find other things that they need. And over time, we will expand into other categories of both tradable product and different things like financing that enables the transactions to happen. And, and what we see a lot of the time is that buyers and sellers may be mismatched on their timelines. And if there could be financial products or short-term loans that help to bridge that gap, that just adds liquidity into the market. So over time, we will add those kinds of products on top of the 
workflow management and marketplace software that Crux is building. How like deep into the corporation level, or I guess even like the personal level on size are like, do you think the buyer side is going to be able to go? Like, am I going to be able to be like, I have a tax liability. Let me go buy some credits. So fun question. <laughs> um, the treasury, by the time you produce this podcast, it is possible that the treasury will have put out guidance on transferability. One of the big things that the market is looking at is whether or not individual people can participate mm -hmm. in these credits. And that is, it's currently a matter of debate among tax lawyers as to whether or not people will be able to offset anything other than passive income, which is a subcategory of income with the credits. And there's some chance that Treasury interprets that they will be able to do that, that people will be able to do that. And what that would mean is that the buyers could be anybody, but we don't know the answer to that yet. That'll be determined sometime when, when wow. the treasury goes in. So I mean, if it's passive to... income, I feel like that's not most people. Those are the ones. Yes. People. <laughs> yes. It, passive is but... usually associated with real estate holdings or holdings of private companies. Yeah. So yeah. yes, <laughs> to have the like scale that would warrant participating in the market. 100%. That would be like yeah. very high people. Duncan just wants a plug in on TurboTax. That's what he was talking yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. Like, do you yeah. want to buy like clean energy <laughs> tax credits? <laughs> just you right owe. at the end. Yeah. <laughs> just right at the end. It's like, you owe this. Can we pay you down? <laughs> yeah. We'll see, guys. Could happen. Something I'm curious about um, is just as a as a founder, what it's been like working on a company as this guidance from the IRS and Treasury is like you get the like drip marketing campaign from them, right? It's just like slowly coming out piece by piece. That's got to be kind of nuts. I don't know. What's that been yeah. like? It's, I mean, I'm a, I'm a junkie for this kind of stuff. I've like spent my career at the intersection of software, financial markets and the government and, and mostly around policy areas where government policy is changing and driving really different behavior in the market. That's basically exclusively what I have done in my entire career. Um, so I find this super fun. It means that basically all of the chips have been thrown in the air at the same time and all of the norms around the ways that the market functions have been disrupted. And what that means is we've got a real opportunity where we can collectively ask the question of how should this market be structured, right? It's like, it's less like normal markets where you have a bunch of players that are already in place that are doing things the way that they've always done them. And therefore, like when you're coming from the outside, it's very hard to change the way that people are operating. And, and now we just have a construct where everything is changing all at once. And that creates an opportunity where we can say, hey, it's it's really strange that it costs so much to get the subsidy that the government is providing for the energy transition. And what if we could build a system where the developers of these projects would get as close to the value 
of the subsidy that the government is saying that they should get as possible? What is the system that would need to exist in order to facilitate that? And it's possible to create that because there isn't an entrenchment of interests yet around this that prevent it. Interesting. Yeah, I've n- I would not expect to hear like you're almost saying it's like green fields uh, development at the intersection of like government and this market, like new market development. Like most people are like, oh, government's like big, like scary institution. Nothing's going to move. But you're almost saying like what any founder would say it was just like there's just so much white space to to run in a way and like actually have a hand in, in developing how this stuff is going to going to happen. Um, That's right. Because every I, variable is destabilized. Right. But I think within that, there's like, I mean, I don't want to get too meta too early, but um, I think two things, like maybe a good like setup question to another follow-up question I have is like, did you just like have a wheel and like spin it three times and get like tech, government and energy? Because like, that's a very, that's a combination or financial markets. Like I haven't like seen that collection of interests um you know that that frequently and so i'd love to even hear more like how you know just looking at your background you know you've spent time in financial markets and then like at the treasury in tech and then now in energy tech climate tech um but then also i think it is such a unique like perspective i think there's probably a lot of entrepreneurs out there who even are listening to this podcast who um you know energy is very um, there is this intersection of like tech and government and it's like maybe older industry sometimes. And so, um, even just like how you think about navigating that greenfield like intersection of government and tech and, and energy, uh, if you've, you've kind of developed through all those interests, like a unique perspective on like where you think this is going the next 10 years. Um, so I guess just like, yeah, your journey over like the last 10 years and then like where you think this is going. Cause I, I think it's, um, you know, tax credits is such an interesting instantiation of it, but I think it's probably broadly applicable to like a lot of energy startups that are going to found over the next decade. Um, yeah. Yeah. So maybe all the way back to the beginning. So I, I grew up here in Washington, DC, which is where I'm currently sitting. My parents met on a political campaign and I was the topic of every conversation growing <laughs> up. Uh, and I, I, and they came from this. It's like, a classic DC story. <laughs> yeah, it, it, they sort of like came from this era of government and you know liberalism in their case, where they like believed that problems could be solved and that it just took people coming to the table and serving, and they could do it, we could do it. Um, so I, I sort of grew up with the notion that policy was an enormously powerful tool. First job I ever had was working on. Barack Obama's campaign started in 2007 before the Iowa caucus and then did that all the way through the end and then found myself at the Treasury working on the financial crisis and the Recovery Act and you know found pretty early that financial markets and energy were fascinating because it relied on government setting the table in an appropriate way, setting the right incentives and the private sector coming to that table and interacting positively, right? And if the government set the table in the wrong way and provided the wrong incentives, then things like the financial crisis 
of 0809 could happen and a lot of people could be in a lot of pain. And similarly, in the absence of really clear, well-architected government policy around energy, you lead it leads to a lot of adverse outcomes for real people and the planet, right? Like we, in the absence of really clear, well-structured policy, it has led to the deterioration of our planet more rapidly than we expected that it would. Um, and, you know, government kind of had its hands over its ears as that was happening. And now all of a sudden we're in this moment post IRA where this is the, the most dramatic catalytic investment that has ever been made by any government ever in the energy system. And, you know, I, I think we all got kind of dulled to these trillion dollar bills that were <laughs> happening in the COVID era. And, you know, then the IRA passed and the early scoring on the IRA was 369 billion. And then subsequent scoring has said that it is larger than that. And private forecasters have said that it's way larger than that. And what it means is we've got this moment where investing in and restructuring the energy system no longer requires just altruism, right? Like it, it no longer, we no longer have to do that or are motivated to do that only because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. We are also now motivated to do it because the government has set the table and provided really rich incentives to change behavior holistically across the system. And, and so again, we're in this moment where policy and the private sector have to interact and have to work together to achieve this really dramatic change in the way that we structure our economy. And so it, it's going to require both sides. It's going to require the government and it's going to require private sector. And frankly, it's going to require nonprofits and you know civic society too, because this is one of the biggest problems we've ever faced as humanity. So it's, it sounds like the message is, is like dive in to entrepreneurs. Like I've, a lot of VCs would be like, don't, right? You see it as yeah. like a theme emerging, right? Like there's American Dynamism Group at Andreessen. I don't know if you have thoughts on on them at all, but um, just the idea of like, hey, we're going to get government into tech or also just like not be afraid of almost like regulation dependent, I, I guess. I don't know if you would want to, call your company that but like how do you think about like i don't it's not like the ira would go away but like it is like kind of highly leveraged to what the government does when you talk about it like setting the table but you seem to be embracing that which i think is interesting as and is like counter to what conventional wisdom would say to do which is always where i think the most interesting opportunities are so um yeah yeah so I, i've done the same geographic move two times so i i grew up in dc I went to Stanford for undergrad. I then came back to DC where I worked in the Obama administration and then went back there for business school. And both times I did that, I was struck by the fact that in, in DC, you think that what's happening in DC is the only thing that matters, right? Like you, you're <laughs> reading every you know email newsletter about what is happening on the debt limit and looking at you know what every member of Congress is saying, and you know everybody's texting each other about, can you believe this or can you believe that? And then you go out to California and it's opposite of that, right? Like that people barely read the newspaper back when people read <laughs> newspapers. Right. Yeah. And the thing that struck me about that was sort of this like, this fallacy that both sides were experiencing where 
in DC, it sort of seemed like policy was all that matters, right? And, and then in California, in that era of tech, there was sort of this notion that the tech will save us, you know, even if government is yeah. asleep at the switch, you're not going to be able to solve the problems. And like, you don't have to deal with it. Just build your company and, you know, you'll hire lobbyists when you get to your series D or whatever. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I think we're like, we're now in this new era of tech and government, frankly, especially subsequent to these three trillion dollar bills that have been passed, the infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Act and the IRA, where it's just the reality. The reality is that we live in in a system where government helps to set the incentives in that system. And the private sector needs to navigate and build the best companies and innovate most effectively in the context of that system. Yeah. Um, oh, it's, yeah, it's really, I don't know. It is interesting to think of like how, yeah, how far we've come like over the past decade, like when you started out. Um, and I, I think, think with, I was just going to say there, I think what's interesting too, is like, while it is a, the, the specific market that you are starting with is like very dependent on government being around or like not being around, whatever, you know what I mean? On like the, on the tax credit system, um, it's not like you're having to sell to government or to yeah, util- yeah. like to utility, like from a sales cycle perspective, you're still right. very much in the like able to move quickly, not sort of sort of hamstrung by those things. So I think a lot of times when we think about energy and like not wanting to go places, it's like, can you sell to consumers instead of to the utility, right? Because do you want 10 year sales cycles or two month sales cycles? Right. Yeah. And I, I think there's a there's a really interesting policy choice that Congress made in the IRA around that, where it would have been possible to incentivize the development of renewables and decarbonization technologies with direct grants. Government yeah. did it in the context of the 1603 grants program, uh, which I worked on at Treasury the first time. And when you do that, it requires the government to weigh in at the project level to say this project is good or bad. And then there are bottlenecks that come with that. And what they did here was they created a transferable tax credit mechanism where private sector entities, other corporations are underwriting and investing in the credits and doing at least that first round of analysis and review before it is submitted on tax returns to the government. Yeah. And I think that's a that's interesting because what it allows for is the formation of the market and money to start flowing without the government having to be a, a bottleneck in the system. Yeah, that is. I really, mean, that... It's a really interesting case for tax credits versus, yeah, say, direct pay mm-hmm. or or. But I, yeah, hmm. it's funny because I, I did want to go straight there, like getting the conversation back on track. I know it just took us on a big detour there, but um like, could you, that is a compelling argument, but what about the cons? Like, if you look at like maybe what the loans program office is doing, they are like the diligence process. Maybe that's more in the, the, the camp of like grants and loans, like that the government is doing that. Um, they're like super involved at the project level. And it sounds like you're saying at the tax uh, for tax credits, like that's not true. 
but can that like lead to, and I don't know much about this, like malfeasance in a way, like, um, any project that's built, like it's access to this. Um, and I don't know, is there, is there some like surface area for like, not the right, like the, the government setting the table in the wrong way, like you've talked about that could lead to sort of like bad behavior that leads to the housing crisis or whatever it is. Um, could you see that like, you know, moral hazard be kind of set up here? And I think the best argument against transferability is that a hundred percent of the credit value doesn't go to the developer, right? The government is saying mm. you should get a dollar for this tax credit and in an efficient market, you know, maybe they're getting 95 cents, 96 cents, 97 cents. And so there's cost from the system being constructed in that way. The benefit is that instead of the developer just saying, hey, I have a credit, it's worth $10 million. A, somebody is investing in that credit, buying that credit, underwriting that credit, determining that the documentation that is supporting it is accurate and sufficient and the project actually exists and is not fraudulent. And so that they're kind of doing all of that work for a fee, right? Like they're, they are providing a service there and requiring that they be compensated for it. And so right. I think you could imagine some theoretical system where the government is just paying directly. That then leads to bottlenecks where the government is, you know, in control of making those decisions. It also sometimes leads to more fraud and abuse when you know people are we we saw this in the case of the uh ppp loans where people were submitting things that were like just totally bogus to the government and you know so so it does cut both ways there are pros and cons on both sides of it I, I think another pro that i am aware of here that i think is important is the perpetuation of the system like it as advocates of a new more efficient energy system that we need to urgently usher in, it's really important that the subsidy that is provided by this law be maintained over a long period of time. And the other thing that happens with tax credits is tax credits build a really diverse base of support around them because lots of people benefit from their existence. And those people that benefit from their existence, you know, everybody from the workers that are putting the steel in the ground and are paid the prevailing wage because the credit is higher if the developer pays them that to the corporation who's buying the credits and investing in it and using it as a tool to manage their tax liability. Those people that are part of that system then become advocates for the continuity of the system. And I, and I think we saw in an early political test here around the debt limit legislation, where the first position that the Republicans carved out was to restrict and remove aspects of the IRA that was very quickly removed from the legislation. I, I think what you are beginning to see there is a diversity of support behind the continuity of this subsidy that is going to be really productive for ushering in the renewable energy future that we all see. So I have a question. Oh, go ahead, Duncan. Well, I just wanted to quickly, I guess, comment on your very original um, 
the the con to transferable tax credits is that there's there's some price, right? It's it's not a hundred percent. I mean, that's of course always been true with tax equity as well, right? No developer hundred percent gets tax equity without paying for it, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, a hundred percent tax equity like the, is just go ahead. The cost of it's the, like the cost of diligence too, which is basically what you're saying, which is right. interesting. Yeah. But what if we can make that simpler? Right? Yeah. What if we can make it easier to bring lots of different buyers to the table, give them the tools they need to search for the credits that they want to buy, give them the ability to process diligence really efficiently, give them the opportunity to be able to manage their compliance against it in a structured way and, and drive down the costs of intermediating that system. And, and that's what we're trying to do with Crux, right? Because if, if we can do that, then what ends up happening is that hundreds of billions of dollars of capital flow more efficiently into the projects that need to be built. And we don't have this bifurcation of the haves and the have nots within the market. We're just the you know public company backed utility scale developments are getting financed. You actually have the ability to drive financing in at competitive prices to new technologies, things like geothermal, things like hydrogen and things like microgrids at a small scale. And that capital that the government intended to go to those those developments, those projects, gets there in more completeness than it it would otherwise get there in the absence of a robust transferable market. Yeah. So you started to answer the question I had, which was which is I am very curious on the diligence process because I do think that to James's question having not gone through a full tax equity process, but having gone through some project financing processes, which my understanding is are very similar. Uh, it's very hard to imagine fraud <laughs> in those markets, but, but the diligence process is, is really intense. So obviously like that's part of what you guys are trying to do is sort of simplify and, and improve that. Um, and I guess in this new like marketplace ecosystem that you're developing is diligence being like the actual diligence being handled by the same parties that handle it today. Are you guys taking on like some components of the diligence or are you just really taking on kind of the maybe structural workflow management side of it? More of the structural workflow management side of it, where you want to make the right documents available at the right parts of the process in a digestible format to the buyer. You want to give different agents within the transaction the tools they need to be able to quickly intake information and make judgments about it. Those agents could be people like insurance providers or appraisers or you know other people within the system here. And having structured information clearly presented helps everybody do their job and interact with each other in a way that is much more streamlined. You're still going to need diligence in the form of you know, tax advisory opinions. In some cases, you're going to need legal opinions on the credit and the substantiation of it. In the case right. of Adams, Someone's going to have to like check that what was uploaded into your NICE system is actually what they said and not a file that says like, permit for wind farm LLC. And it's actually like a subway ticket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're still going to, you're still going to see a 
very important role that is played by syndicators, by uh, tax advisory firms, by lawyers in these transactions. The question is, how do we provide the right people in the transaction, the right information at the right point of the process and make it as easy as possible for people to intake the information that they need and come to a judgment? And if we yeah. can do that, if we can structure that, the workflows and, and the data around it, then we can diminish the costs associated with originating credits. And that drives more of the margin of the credit to the developer. And, and frankly, the buyer, it, it like takes the share to the, to the uh, different people in the value chain may be reduced, but the volumes will go up substantially. So, you know, I, I think people are still going to do well here, but in a system that is much more efficient. Is there anyone who doesn't like the idea of a more efficient system, right? You know, the army of folks who process these things and sort of the, I'll call it traditional, you know, tax equity approach and, you know, derive some value from it. Do they see this as threatening or is it, it so similar that maybe, no, we'll just, we'll just get on crux and do the same thing. I think if... The only thing that the IRA did was transferability, right? It didn't change the credits that were being provided, the generosity of those credits, the, the categories the of technology, of the volume, then there would be inherent scarcity, right? Like then transferability would be eating from a portion of the market that people had an entrenched stake in protecting. The reality is that it just so dramatically expanded the pie here that even if it changes the dynamics around the market, it's not like people aren't going to make a lot of money. It's not like law firms yeah. that yeah. that do legal opinions around tax credits aren't going to make a ton of money. It just may be... No one's really concerned in that one. Not yeah. really, yeah. But because yeah. the government, again, set the table where incentives are aligned to the formation of this new, much larger market. And... And everybody's trying to figure out how to adjust their businesses in the context of a market that's going to grow by five to 10 X in five years. I guess yeah. from that perspective, you might still like, you, because it's growing so much, like you keep your little analysts who are doing lots of diligence work and now they can just do more with the crux marketplace and they don't have to necessarily hire more people. And that like actually enables them to have some sort of value creation from a growth and hiring perspective. Yeah. And it allows people to do that higher order work, right? Mm -hmm. Allows people to go find new prospective buyers with these credits and educate them on what the profile of the credits are and, and help them participate in the market and less on paperwork. Mm -hmm. And, and that's people like that too, right? Cause that enables them to do more business at greater scale. That is more of the, you know, human centered work than yeah. the mm -hmm. sort of rote formation of tasks. All right, another who might not like this question. I'm I'm just looking for one. Um, <laughs> there's it's it's often been sort of discussed that in the U.S. in residential solar, um, our residential solar look market looks quite a bit different than Europe's, Australia's, in that we have a couple very large companies that also really favor third party financing. Um, and one sort of reason for this that's proposed is tax credits, right? 
um, because we incentivize this stuff through the tax code and because not every homeowner, you know, has an extra, you know, 20 grand of tax liability, third-party ownership makes a lot of sense. Um, do we think that transferability could change the residential solar market to look more like the say Australian model that's just like a really long tail of just lots of small like your electrician does it for you right you don't need some like massive publicly traded corporation because the tax credit you just sell it through your tax consultant or whatever so I think it is definitely going to change the shape of the residential solar market and instead of having to be a company of the scale that could access the tax equity market via a lease product, you will be able to sell portions of owned tax credits to in smaller increments than you would have otherwise been able to do. And so that should lead to more participants that are coming into the market with solar as a service offerings that are able to compete with the public company scale solar as a service providers. And I think that that's good. So is that like naturally the market you go after or <clears throat> just out of curiosity, like we didn't talk as much about the seller side, but um, like if these bigger groups already have been managing tax equity, like that kind of means by definition, you may be focusing on like providing more access to those that, you know, haven't, you know, it has, it hasn't been easy enough in the past, I guess. Yeah. So we see tax credit transferability in a bunch of places. So it's community and CNI solar. It is this solar as a service, you know, smaller pools of leased product, residential stuff. Uh, it is the novel technology categories. We've spent some time talking about that so far, but, you know, things like geothermal, um, things like battery storage yeah. that had not previously had the standalone ITC. Um, and then, you know, this starts to get pretty technical pretty quickly, but we're also going to see tax equity done on projects where the tax credits are also sold from a tax equity project finance structure. And that may be an optimal configuration for the biggest utility scale projects. So, you know, I think we're going to end up seeing transferability in a lot of different places yeah. with the, the residential and community and CNI categories being a very obvious first mover. Nice. So what, what you were just talking about there was like hybrid structures. Yes. Yeah. Where at least what I, I, I'm not like a deep project finance nerd, but at least what I've heard about these is that, right. The idea is you get to retain the step up essentially. Um, yes. And monetize the depreciation and the, yeah. And the depreciation as well. Yeah. And it, this sort of gets back to Colleen's question on diligence. Part of the reason why, that may also be an attractive structure to tax credit buyers is if you imagine a bank has performed really deep, complex tax equity diligence on the project in order to finance the tax equity in that project. And then the bank is selling tax credits associated with that same project and new buyers can both 
observe the diligence information and be confident that the bank has skin in the game in the tax equity. That's the sort of thing that will help buyers get comfortable about purchasing the tax credits. And, and that should drive down the cost of capital associated with tax equity because the bank is able to make an additional margin on the syndication of the tax credits and bring more people into the demand side of the equation. So when the government tells me that I can use tax credits on my personal tax liability, I can be like, oh, this bank already approved it and buy my tax credits through the Crux app. Boom. Done. So right. <laughs> who do you I'm think ready. who do you think wins here? Right? There's I don't know, there's a bunch of folks interested in this idea. What what are what's like the recipe that at least that you're willing to talk about that that you know leads to winning? Yeah, so it, it turns out that when the government creates a new multi-hundred billion dollar <laughs> asset class, that it's not a secret and that other people try to uh, <laughs> approach the space. It, it, look, there's we need to get to the place where these tax credits are being transferred at scale into a market where demand meets supply. And if supply is going to be in the neighborhood of $100 billion a year, we need that amount of demand to come into the other side of the market. And there are going to be a lot of participants that participate constructively in that market and help to bring new buyers into the space. And that's good. We should want that because that will lead to more money being formed, more capital being formed around these projects. We are going to be ruthlessly focused on what the needs of our clients are in these transactions. And on the sell side, they need to be able to transact simply. They need to get the best price. They need to be confident that the market exists to be able to sell their credits. For intermediaries, they need the tools to be able to transact efficiently, to place a lot of credits in smaller increments without a associated amount of pain to facilitate a, a very uh, complicated and full syndicate around those credits. On the buy side, they need to be able to find the things that they want, be able to transact quickly, be able to intake information and due diligence in a way that they feel confident about, be able to be responsive to compliance obligations associated with the credits. And we're going to be hyper-focused on how to meet those needs of those different participants in the value chain. And our belief is that if we do that really well, that we will bring together the largest base of supply and demand around our marketplace. And that will lead to the most efficient transactions. And with the most efficient transactions, we can do the most good and drive the most capital in these projects. Mm, okay. So yeah, it's not just, oh, there's a network effect. Um, although I think there definitely could be if, yeah, the the efficiency and capabilities of the tools actually leads to better price discovery. Um, because yes. then why, why would you be elsewhere? You know, why, why would a developer go, go somewhere else? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And again, I think from a normative perspective, it and we see this in the formation of 
other markets. And I spent time at Treasury and at BlackRock looking at the structure of novel financial products in emerging markets around new categories. And what you will often see when a new category is introduced, new asset class is introduced, is there's a lot of creative entropy at the beginning. And then over time, there's convergence to a single platform or a number of interoperable platforms. And that is the most efficient long-term structure because ultimately buyers and sellers benefit when they're in the same town square, right? If, if they're in multiple town squares and there's not enough of either side, then intermediaries benefit the most because yeah. they're able to take advantage of illiquidity in the market. I'd love to, I've been trying to like, so I haven't thought much about this stuff to be honest. And if, so I'm trying to like wrap my head around the whole thing and I don't want it to come off as like a, I don't know, maybe I'm playing a little devil's advocate or just like trying to think about, you know, you mentioned creative entropy and you talk about like the government setting the table well, and it's more from this place of like, I haven't really stopped to think about the pace at which we're trying to do things. <laughs> and like, it's always, obviously everyone's like faster, better, like more capital, like go, go, go. Um, but you do look at those moments where, um, you know, the, the table maybe has been set wrong. So two recent examples, maybe like, you know, people look at the efficacy or now there's now doubt on like the efficacy of say college loans and like how many people are in debt. And that was like a lot of capital unlocked for people to go to college. And we also look at like the glut of the, the housing market. And it wasn't like, you know, people were going in and buying homes. Like it wasn't like, fra I don't imagine like fraudulent, uh, clean energy projects. Like, I think that sounds like it'd be pretty hard to do. Like, but, um, I think you're just in this really unique position to get to ask this question to, which is like, you're sitting between basically the supply side and the demand side where in the past, maybe I'd think of like, it was incumbent upon, um, you know, the PUC or like energy markets to create the right incentive structures, say like with community solar to make sure projects are getting built in the right locations, um, based on like energy market price signals, essentially. Um, and then on, on the demand side, like as long as, I mean, on the supply side of capital, like as long as like the government is creating these incentives, more capital, it's, it's just going to make like say solar or wind relatively cheaper to other solutions that will get built otherwise. But when you look at like this flood of capital into the space, you could see like if any, either of those two pieces are off a bit, like what if we build a bunch of solar that like ultimately doesn't serve the energy market or like, I guess an argument for higher interest rates is like, it increases the barrier to like, what is going to be productive. So like, you really need like a step change junctions, a jump in something being like innovative for it to create a return is like one way of looking at it, I guess. Um, and so if we're like on the one hand, not paying close attention to like state by state, locale by locale, what these energy market price signals are, at the same time that we're like lowering the barrier for these projects to like clear a return threshold, you could see a situation where like we get a glut of clean energy built. 
So, and I come at it from the perspective of like, I want clean energy to like make an impact on energy markets and like be the best solution out there. Um, and that to happen in like a natural way that like, it just beats coal and natural gas. Like it doesn't benefit if, benefit us if we build things that don't ultimately like serve a purpose or make energy markets better or cheaper or what have you. So I don't know. I, I know there's like a lot of interlocking parts of that. You couldn't say like, oh, the IRA created the wrong incentives or like, oh, this energy market um, has the wrong price incentives. Like it would hard to be the lay, lay like blame at anyone's feet if this did go wrong, but it's maybe a weird way of, of winding up to and asking the question of like, you sit in the middle of all of it. <laughs> so what are you afraid of? Like in this whole, like, how could this go wrong? Or like, should we even be thinking about that? And you're like, this is just so undeniably good that like in that creative entropy, like maybe 10% of projects are bullshit, but like writ large, like this is like going to be a smashing success. And the IRA is like the most innovative policy ever. So I know that's like a ton to pull together, but I just think you're in this really unique position to have like a perspective on like, how effective this ultimately is all going to be. And I'm, I'm like curious what your take is on it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to give like a headline take on how effective this is ultimately going to be. And then I'm going to talk about when markets break and the government is involved, what leads markets to break and the mm -hmm. sorts of things that we might want to look out for on that. So high level take, the IRA is amazing. It is like one of the most catalytic pieces it is the most catalytic piece of climate legislation ever passed. It is actually going to bend the curve on this stuff. It could not come soon enough. It is going to drive a ton of investment at a time when we urgently need it. And the result of it is going to be that the grid and our power in general is sourced from more renewable sources at much wider scale. And that's going to happen basically now because of the amount of subsidy that is going into the space. So, so headline, it's awesome. Uh, when markets break, two categories of reasons why that sometimes happens. One, subsidy is misapplied. So it's going to the wrong yeah. things that where the subsidy is so large that it leads people to do uneconomic things. So right. I think a good example of that is the Chinese property market, right? right. Where it He's led overbuilt. to all, all, all of this overbuilding of apartment buildings yeah. that nobody's ever going to live in. And, and that's a form of subsidy that went into that category of asset that wasn't useful and wasn't supported by consumer demand for that asset. So I, I think in this space, we should be looking at whether you're seeing developments that are being built in places that don't make sense. And because the subsidy is so significant, that's leading to yeah. the, the bunch of infrastructure being built in places where it shouldn't be. I think that, that would be a thing to look for here. Like we the just other, like curtail all the solar that the subsidy creates because we've like overloaded a certain market with solar or something would be like an example of that, I guess. Yeah. Or like it's so, it's so economic. The subsidy is paying for the development. Yeah. Right. It, and you're seeing, you know, people stack credits on top of each other in order to just make, like get as many credits as possible. And the end product 
is less relevant because the subsidy is so enhanced by the structure that we would look at that and we'd say, that's the sort of thing that that shouldn't exist and, and wouldn't exist in a system with market discipline. Yeah, Frankly, I don't think we're particularly at risk of that because so much needs to be built and the tech around renewables is just getting a lot better such that it makes sense to build and it additionally makes sense to build with the subsidy. So I'm not yeah. that worried about that. Um, the second category would be category or condition where markets break is risk is mispriced, right? And we saw this in the US housing crisis yeah. from 06 through 09, where buyers of mortgage-backed securities were buying securities that they thought carried a different risk than they actually carried because it was obfuscated through so many layers of financial structure and in some cases insurance that people didn't really understand. And that led to way outsized losses for the owners of those securities than they expected, which led to a, a crisis in the banking sector. Yeah. And again, in this case, I'm not that worried about that because there isn't there isn't a lot of implicit leverage that is in these tax credit transactions. There's important diligence that needs to be performed to make sure that the credit is substantiated and has the right amount of information and you know is is priced at the right level and all those sorts of things. But I'm not worried about there being such a holistic mispricing of risk in the system that it catalyzes negative financial outcomes on the other side of it. So again, back to the headline, I think the IRA is awesome. I think it's going to drive a ton of investment into these projects. And I think that those are the two places that we should look, but I'm not that worried about either one. Yeah. One I've... By the way, that's I... awesome. I they, like... <laughs> Very well learned structured a lot. answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so your two categories, like subsidizing things we don't want to, and then you know mispriced risk. Where I've heard some consternation about subsidizing things that we might not want to that are uneconomic is around hydrogen. Um, there's all varieties of concern about the hydrogen PTC. Um, and it seems like some of the concerns are approaching the assertion that like the PTC tax credit level is so high, you can do things you never should actually bother doing with electrolyzers to produce hydrogen. Um, I'd be it, And it's all like kind of happening right now. And we're like see, seeing what guidance will be. And people are saying it should be you know, this is the controversy of like, should it be hourly matched with clean energy? Should I, all this stuff? Do you have any, I don't, it seems to be like one of the most controversial parts of the IRA. Also the last lot, lack of step down on the pricing, right? It's sort of like today that may or may not be true, but however many years from now when it's still the same oh, price. On, the, on, what on the hydrogen specifically, yeah, the value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you have any, I guess, in, for, you know, forget maybe any specific question I had there, but just in general, like any takes or perspectives on on the hydrogen stuff in in the ira yeah so i love building this company in in part because it is so interdisciplinary i i got here first by when i left treasury investing in a handful of very deep tech startups that were like at the scientific edge of things. And I found it 
just so exhilarating and motivating and inspiring that we were doing that stuff and companies were building so innovatively. I am not a chemist. I'm not a physicist. <laughs> like I, I don't, I don't know much about the composition and, you know, unit economics of, of various uh, forms of fuel. And so when I, when I internalize this question, the place where I go is if we collectively as an industry and as the builders in this space are finding ourselves building projects that don't make sense, we collectively should hold ourselves accountable to that because that is the sort of thing that will put this law at risk, right? Like if there are lots of examples of people misusing the subsidy, that's the sort of thing that could lead the political environment around the continuity of the IRA to shift. And I think we should we should collectively be attendant to that risk. And, you know, both because it's it's wasteful to build projects that don't make sense and because it could put the rest of it at peril. I think that's a good answer. So yeah, you're saying, not sure if I have a view, but like, it's important to get this stuff right. I'm saying like, I don't have a particular view on the yeah. way that the subsidy is set there. I, I would rely on people that are smarter about that than I am, including probably you guys. But I, I would say that if, if we find ourselves far, far out the pier on that stuff, it, it could be dangerous to the rest of this law and our ability to usher in the clean energy future that we all want to see. Yeah. If, if we get to that point, certainly don't want to poison the well. Yeah. Yes. I almost feel like another way of thinking about that is just like sizing the subsidy correctly. Like of the things being subsidized, many of them are much further along and they're like technological development or how much tech risk there is and say solar, wind, batteries. Um, you know, I'm not even sure what else is out there, but like, you know, you made the point that like, it's obvious that these technologies are better and the subsidy is like additive as they like continue to come down the cost curve. Um, it's also okay that if we don't know on green hydrogen, like we have to fund something to like get it off the ground and see in the same way that we did with solar and wind, like 20, 30 years ago, and look what we got from it. But we did like progressively step up those incentives over time. And I, so, you know, it's not even like, I, I would even just as the one who was just like, Hey, what should we be afraid of? It's also like, it's okay to make like a small bet that doesn't pan out and be, you know, kind of be ahead of that. Right. So I, I don't even know how it's structured. Like if green hydrogen just like ran away with massive amounts of subsidy and like, didn't really pan out, that would be an issue. But, um, you know, it's, it's also, I think like we should encourage the risk taking, like, that's what a lot of this is for. If, if done like in a methodical kind of thoughtful way, I guess. Totally. And, and if you look at some of the investments that were made with those recovery act dollars and loan guarantees that went into early stage companies in clean tech 1.0, you know, that, that led to, or contributed to the current reality around EVs, the current reality around, you know, TV, like there are a bunch of places where investments catalyzed 
development. Yeah. And that's good. So I, I think your your point on changing the economics so dramatically on novel technologies that we're able to make step function breakthroughs is a really strong point. Yeah. But I mean, and to your point though, is like people still talk about some of those programs, like they're a bad thing because of Solyndra, you know, which like, yeah. Yeah, so there, there's a risk here on on how it's perceived, um, but uh, I don't know. It's it, you know, it's a tough and how line it's revisited. To walk, I, I think. Yeah, I think like you know, we'll see. I think like to Albert's point, like okay, we let kind of green hydrogen go. I think that I I'm forgetting the details on the on how it's structured, but I want to say it's like the next ten years. It like is already locked in on what the incentive is, and it's very lucrative. And so like the ability to revisit that and have a real conversation on it in the future is I feel like the important component. Yeah. Um, as yeah. much as you want stability in the market, you also, to your point, don't want to, if you see like st stability in the market, creating like weird things <laughs> that were intended, it should still be like discussed and not just be like, well, that's what we decided. And we said we wanted stability. So <laughs> yeah. And and let's hold ourselves accountable to creating an energy system that produces energy more efficiently yeah. to end users and, yeah. you know, builds projects that are actually better than these, you know, the polluting system that we currently have and make yeah, it more efficient. Like... And if we're all doing that, then we'll, everybody will get a lot of tax credits and make a lot of money and we'll change the energy system very rapidly. Yeah. yeah. So I think that brings us, uh, unless... James or Duncan, you have any final questions? I feel like that brings us nicely into um, a first yeah. question of our closing. Wait, I have one I have to ask. Okay. I, I, asked, I, asked, I asked Twitter what they want to know. I didn't mention <laughs> Crux specifically, but just what do you want to know about tax credit marketplaces? And this was the one response I got. So I feel like I have to, nice. you know, it'd be, yeah, it'd be bad if I didn't bring it up. So someone asked, they are very interested in um, most of discussion of transferability is about the ITC. They're very interested in the PTC. Um, and um, in addition to being able to sell your production tax credits, which for anyone who doesn't know, is just basically you get them over time as you generate power or, or hydrogen or whatever the unit of volume is, um, you get them per unit, right? Um, as opposed to getting it up front with your investment. And they were curious if not only is it possible to sell your production tax credits via transferability, but if paired with someone who wanted to take on the production risk, if you could actually sell like 10 years of them on day one, as if yes. sort of synthetically turning it into an ITC. Uh, yes and yes. So it is possible to sell your production tax credits via the transferability market. It is also possible to obligate the forward sale of those tax credits that to the extent that PTCs have been employed in the past, they have been structured as a forward sale in tax equity. So tax equity is receiving mm -hmm. a stream of PTCs for the investment that they are making. Uh, and you'll see a similar kind of structure, I think in some places in the transferability market. TTCs have an interesting risk profile versus investment tax credits, insofar as a production tax credit is associated with a unit produced, a unit of energy produced equals 
X units of energy equal Y units of tax credits. And they don't have recapture risk associated with basis step up because it it doesn't, it's not dependent on the project value. And so to the extent that the biggest risk associated with investment tax credits is the risk associated with recapture having to do with the value of the project, PTCs have none of that risk. And so I, I think they're they're going to be, there's going to be very strong demand for that kind of tax credit because it it just has a different risk profile than the ITCs. And, and then I think to your point on forward purchases of PTCs and, and other tax credits, I think you're going to see financing markets emerge. They already are that bridge the gap between a developer mm-hmm. when the, between the period where a developer knows that they are going to receive a credit and actually receives that credit. And you'll see different forms of Some... factoring and asset finance that start to facilitate the transaction of tax credits outside of the, the moment when the tax credit itself is, is facilitated. Yeah. You could see like a, a KWH analytics or something, just how they have like a revenue put uh, on like PPAs essentially have some, because it's totally. all production risk. Yeah. Okay. Totally. Cool. And in the fullness of time, we crux will facilitate markets in those kinds of financial products. Nice. That's, that's very interesting. Awesome. James, it looks like you're going to say something or no. No, I'm, I'm, I'm cut off. We could go like four more hours, so we gotta yeah, we gotta cross yeah, yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Um, okay, so coming so coming back into the policy world a little bit, you are the energy czar of America. You Thank get you for one this very honored to be here. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. Um, you get one policy, and then you're done. That's uh, <laughs> a very short appointment. <laughs> what do you do? We have to, that it appears that the debt limit bill is going to solve or not solve, but address aspects of permitting. We need to solve permitting and interconnection. Yeah. It's like, it is one thing to, to give all of this subsidy for developing this stuff, but if you can't turn it on and connect it, it doesn't matter. And so we need to solve that problem. Do you have any ideas? make it make it much easier to get projects approved add more staffing to uh the agencies that are responsible for managing those queues let them uh, pay those people more let them pay those people more you know like all of the things that reduce the bottleneck of the government in in its various forms that prevent the the permitting from happening. And, it, and it's not to say that there aren't valid questions that are being asked and that we do need to facilitate community engagement and make sure that we you know understand the environmental risks around a project. And so to the extent that we are able to solve that by staffing the problem more and being smarter about the way that we're managing the queues and turning projects on, I, I think 
is the way to approach the problem. I feel like on permitting, there's got to be solutions. I do sometimes wonder if we understate the magnitude of the interconnection challenge, right? Like the power system just has not grown for 20 years, basically. Like we're so far from sort of like staffed up for this. And I don't mean just bodies, but bodies as well. Like you literally can't hire enough power engineers at an ISO to do these things. I, I'm really curious, like what the solution is going to be on interconnection. I, okay. I'm, start, I'm starting to think it will like be the limiting factor on, on, on all of this really, both the load side and the supply side. Yeah. For, for what it's worth, I, I think there are three big limiting factors to us being able to go as fast as we want on the deployments of these systems and the energy transition. It's labor, right? So like getting enough people that are qualified to be able to put these projects in the ground, it's permitting and interconnection, and it's the financing of the credits. And I think if you solve those problems, if you're able to find and facilitate as many people as possible that build this stuff, if you're able to turn projects on efficiently and effectively, and you're able to monetize credits in an efficient and deep market, then we, we do what we all hope we will do over the next decade. So you're not worried about lithium and polysilicon? Uh, that, that is not, I, that's not my, yeah, I guess that's a fourth. I'm just, <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just curious. Yeah. I'm just, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm more, I, it seems like you're seeing the pipelines of that improve. So I, I'm more focused yeah. on I agree. the other three. I, I like it. Well. I, we see, uh, we need more. We, I'm glad we have founders in the, the tax credit side of things, but could see more in the labor and permitting, I think. Yeah, totally. I think those companies might look different, but they need to exist. I was just thinking like bags of cash to permitting offices, just like walk in and be like, approve my project. That's not probably not legal that's, though. That's called a bribe. I mean, um... <laughs> it's called an expediter. Yeah. I'm I'm reading about Czar of America. You could probably do it. That's yeah. right. Bags of cash. <laughs> I'm reading about post like post Civil War. You know the kind of Carnegie J P Morgan times, and that was like pretty. That wasn't even that wasn't even like frowned upon in those days. I guess so. We did build a lot that. of shit. I, you know, I don't yeah. know, dude. I think the the Gilded Era is a really rich place to look. It's great. <laughs> yeah, because there's so much technology innovation that was happening all at once. That was wild. Right? It, was it really, really was insane. Social and economic yeah. outcomes. It's interesting. Yeah. All right. So into Joe Burnope. Do you know now, how Joe Burnope works? Yes. Okay. I heard understand it. the core concept. All right. All right. So we're just going to kind of rapid fire him. Um, Davos. Nope. <laughs> about jervos can you say that you were you were at the treasury i feel like there's a lot of you know treasury fed uh you know that was a strong nope james no question it was him. a strong well i'm trying to find it's a follow-up question i don't know <laughs> I, like would i go if invited i would go 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone would go if invited. Like, let's be no, honest. Anyone who I says they wouldn't, I don't think I would actually. You would. You'd go. You'd you. go. No. Yeah, you would 100% go and like make. Fun I'd tweet the I'm not going. That was, and that's you know, it's its own like. <laughs> It's still using it for for gain, yeah. you know. It's it's. I'd want to be invited, but I'm not yeah. saying go. So that's you know. That's... You'd like fly there and stand outside and be like, "I was invited, but I'm not going in." I'd throw an eco rave um, next door. You could do like a Twitter Spaces thing from Davos. <laughs> right. Hopefully, it right. Works. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dervos. I don't know about Dervos. Tell me about Dervos. Uh, so Dervos is. You're invited. Officially, oh, the rebrand of our annual DER summit, which is the much cooler version of Davos. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty dope. I mean, uh, yeah. So, New York City this fall. So we're like a bunch of nerds going to talk about to tax determined. credits and like yeah. a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Sounds dope to me. Yeah. Uh, ESG. We're just sticking on the hard-hitting acronyms. <laughs> uh, dope. I think it's it is crazy that we are in this political moment around ESG. I think it is like completely destructive and not at all uh, beneficial to the future that we all need to create here. And so I I hate that this has happened. Um, I think it like leads to a requirement that we all talk about this stuff differently. Yeah. Um, and, and then I think, I think we, we need to be more attuned to the fact that this requires the collective in order to solve the problem that is in front of us. And, and if it feels like a moralizing postal thing, then it's going to lead to a, averse response from people and and like the collective the people that live in these you know places like new york city and washington dc need to be attended to the fact that these projects are getting built all across the country and require buy-in from local communities in order to do them and and so it needs to be we need to change the way that we talk about it but that doesn't mean that corporation shouldn't be investing in a sustainable future. They absolutely should be. Yeah. Uh, DOE loans program. Dope. How dope. We all, we talked about the IRA. We did not talk about the loans program. So we like, talked a little bit about the loans program of similar program magnitude, 2010, right, 2009. Right. James, um, I feel like you're really not in the, you're not in a, a single answer and move on. <laughs> No, <laughs> I want the con. I'm, I I love the context. Uh, so I worked on the loan program from the treasury side in 09 and 2010. We talked a little bit about the outcomes of that from a development of the, the markets around EVs. Tesla got a DOE loan guarantee, and you know their cars uh, are pretty dope, even if their founder is not. Um, and. <laughs> Elon uh, Musk, dope or nope? <laughs> yeah. uh, and and I think it's a it's a really cool way of driving catalytic capital into places that need it. So I, I think it's super cool. Nice. Uh, putting batteries in everything to get tax credits. 
Nope. <laughs> I mean, only if it is economic and viable to the energy system to put those batteries in said things. So like a heat pump uh, clothes dryer that has a battery. Is that, uh, in your like, estimation, not economic or not useful? I don't know. I, I was more What about, about a about toaster like, with a battery? Well, it needs to be like three kilowatt hours or whatever, the, what? whatever the limit is. Yeah. How, like that, how much that's a testing? big fucking toaster. Yeah. That's <laughs> well, I read it as We're just testing. like put a battery on my TV and get 30% off. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, also I mean, there's definitely a wave of battery embedded devices coming. I'm not every, you know, it's not going to be your espresso machine, but like, you know, <laughs> Im impulse is the first of them. And I think it makes a very good case for it. It making sense. Um, Small I'm gonna module. say dope. So, You're so you just dope. you just okay. mean devices? I like we're that really we're their, like really failing this on their own merits. Have put batteries in themselves and now happen to get tax credits. Not like or maybe the tax the credit game. Do you, how do you know? How do you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. Next episode: <laughs> batteries and appliances. Um, <laughs> small modular nuclear. I think pretty dope. We're all you, yeah. I'm excited about that. Who's going to do the first now that nukes get ITC? Who's going to do the first nuke? PTC. PTC, sorry. Who's going to do the first nuke tax equity or transferability deal? I think it'll be transferability because it, it yeah. again, PTCs, I think, are going to be a product that the market really wants. So I, I, yeah, I, I think that those are probably going to be transferability. Cool. All right, and last but not least, franchise rights. Wow, you guys still ask this one for me, huh? Yeah, and do you know? Do you understand <laughs> franchise rights as a concept? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, wonkiest <laughs> one, but James always gets mad at me if I don't ask it. Um, <laughs> it's basically like the utilities' rights to own the distribution grids. Like you can't sell power to your neighbor. Um, yeah, the, that general the, concept. Uh, the monopoly How, of the utility. Yeah. Monopoly on waters. Nice. Ooh. Oh, it's with James That's on this a one. Nope. I'm actually a big, I'm a big franchise rights fan, but I also used to work Are for you? utility. So they, they me call more. me. I'm a, I'm a public um, power guy now. <laughs> um, we created franchise rights because we didn't want chaos of wires running everywhere. And mm -hmm. we wanted to like somewhat have some community or like public safety net on the grid. Yes. And for reasons that we won't go into here, I'm not a full public power advocate. I like the sort of like pseudo regulated private market. Um, um, but that would be a whole, we definitely wouldn't end for a long time if we went into that. Next but, podcast. Next pod. <laughs> next pod. Yeah. We have a lot of topics from Dervos. We'll talk about it there. Sorry, see you at Dervos. We'll talk about a Dervos. Yeah. See you at Dervos. <laughs> okay. Basically, so basically. Shorthand is like franchise rights are basically what Sam Altman's trying to do right now with large language models. Like same idea, oh you know, same deal. Totally. <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about, I, but we're just going to slide past that. Um, okay. Closing out big shouts. 
this is where you say big shouts to anyone you want to give big shouts to. Um, I, I'm going to give some big shouts to Barack Obama for employing <laughs> both of us directly and or indirectly during the ARA days. So thank you, government. Yes. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know whether I'm supposed to say thank you on that. I agree. Um, <laughs> I So Kieran Bataraju from Oh, ARA I was going to do Big He's the reason I'm on this Karen. call. I just I think he is one of the menchiest guys in power uh, and climate. And great just, use of the word bench. And I'm just like I'm very um, appreciative of him of him as a friend. Um, so definitely him. Big shout out to the Congress. Doesn't get a lot of credit, but passed a hell of a thing here in the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think it's going to be super catalytic. And again, like people get really down on government, right? Like how much do you hear people complaining about how government does nothing? The government of the, of the first half term of the Biden administration passed a lot of really catalytic shit. And I think it's going to change the way that our economy is structured. And that's awesome. Love it. Um, Duncan, All James, right. you got any big shouts? Are we good? I was going to do big shouts to Kieran. Yeah, we can give him I think I couldn't get past the one. I think he's still strangely underrated in the space. I don't get it, but people I, still not... don't get it. He, he's everywhere. Like, he's the guy. He's the guy. Kieran, <laughs> dope. I hope Kieran makes it to minute 180 of this podcast. <laughs> he's, he's pro <laughs> probably will. He's writing checks all over the place, like running a sick company and still like listening to two hour long podcasts. It's kind of crazy. Good to see you here, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think that that's a wrap. Alfred, thank you so much. This was awesome. Sweet. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. Really uh, appreciate being included and, and also the work that you guys are doing. I look forward to celebrating with all of you at Durbus. Oh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes. We'll see you there. You will attend Dervos and you will be held accountable. <laughs> <laughs> that's the title right there. All right, that's a very Give weird inside joke that Duncan and I have. Yeah, no, we want to make that t-shirt for sure. Um, all right. Well, all right. On that, Sounds good. On that cheers. note, have a good night. See you, everybody. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Bye. it. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.